0: And all the people said, amen. Thank you, Doug, choir and orchestra, musicians. I would invite your attention to the Song of Solomon again, this time chapter 3, verse 6, Song of Solomon. I wish I could share all my mail and email with you on these messages, but it is really fascinating. I had a letter from an older lady who had been here for a family member being baptized. On the Sunday, I preached on the romantic power of women, how to put the sizzle back into your marriage. And she said, "Uh, Pastor, I tried the sizzle. I went out and bought a brand new nightgown. I called this the peekaboo approach. And she said, I got on my new nightgown. And my husband came in the room, and he said, she said, "You want to take a peek?" He said, uh, "Boo." <laughs> she said, "Do you have any more ideas? I might try." <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, I, we've had a good time, but uh, uh, we appreciate the uh, appreciate all the encouragement you've given me, ladies. And they keep saying, "Now, when are you going to let the men have it?" So today, I want to speak on the romantic power of a man. The romantic power. Of a man. Now keep in mind that the book of the Song of Solomon is a series of seven songs. Uh, seven songs. We have the first one is marriage in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 7. And it's a, it's a statement about their marriage, it's a song of celebration. And then the other songs are really flashbacks about things that have happened since or before. In chapter 2, verse 8, you start with this whole section on courtship. You remember we went through that. How do you court? How do you romance each other? Through chapter 3, verse 5. And now we're on the song that I call betrothal in chapter 3, verse 6. It is the song of betrothal all the way through to chapter 5, verse 1. And in that great song, Shulamite woman gives us a view of her man. She talks about him in romantic ways, but she gives her description, not a man's description about what a man should be for a woman, but it's a woman's description about what a man should be for a woman. And that is found in our text today. Now you need to remember several things. That Solomon represents Christ and the Shulamite woman represents his bride, the church. And so the characteristics that are applied to the Shulamite woman or to Solomon are characteristics that are a part of the relationship that Jesus has with his body. And so the characteristics of a, of a man, the romantic characteristics of a man, have to be compared with what Jesus does when he loves the church. It's very important. You remember when Jesus prayed, he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. Now, that's not just a prayer for the will of God, because the sovereign will of God is going to be done. What it is is an instruction to us on oftentimes how we are to interpret the Bible. I look for keys to understanding things on earth by what's going on in heaven. As the Father loves the Son, Jesus said, so have I loved you. As the Father sent the Son, so have I sent you. And throughout the New Testament, if you're wise in your exposition, you're always looking for heavenly figures of earthly reality. And this is one of those, the whole theme threading through the song of Solomon, the love of Solomon for the Shulamite woman and the love of the Shulamite woman in turn for Solomon. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage. A second thing that's very important as we go through this passage is to remember that this is her perspective. She is telling you what this man is to her. And she is in so doing telling us what makes a man a genuine godly husband in this time, in this age, in this period of life. It's very important. A third thing I would have you to understand as we go through this is that behind all the pictures and all the figurative language of the Song of Solomon is the truth of the Kadosh of God or the hagias of God. It is the holiness of God. And what he's trying to say is that just as God, and the word hadosh, kadosh is a cut off. It is to be cut off. So the holy God is cut off from all other gods. There is no God like him. There is none like him. He is unique. There is no one to compare with him. And when Christ is holy, he is hagias. He is unique. There is none like Christ. And so what he's saying is that holiness that is reflected from God's character and Christ's character must be reflected in the marriage. So I have married my wife and I am kadosh to all other women. I am married to my wife, and I am hagias, cut off from all of the women. She is married to me, and we, in a godly marriage of a covenant, we reflect the holiness of God by our faithfulness and sanctity in marriage, by treating the one to whom we have made the covenant, or the promise, as if all others of, of uh, her uh, gender are cut off from us. And when you read this, you must remember that. This is about the holiness of God. And that's why there are holy reflections in here about the character of God and the nature of God in this figurative language. And I'll show you some of those. A woman wrote in to Ann Landers this week. Maybe you saw it. And she said, I'm having a little trouble with my second husband. He's 49, and I walk into the room. When he thinks I'm not around, I catch him sucking his thumb. How would you like to be married to a 49-year-old thumbsucker? Huh? And she wanted to know if there was something wrong or if she should what she should do. And did any of you see that? It was in Ann Landers this week. How many of you read Ann Landers period? Okay, yeah. I use it for illustrations. That's why I read it. And, uh, but anyway, I, I, she said, now be patient with him, be, but make sure he goes to see somebody. He's in deep weeds. He's in trouble, and he needs help. So, what kind of a man is it that the Shulamite woman wants? And how does she want him to romance her? You know, when you are romancing a woman, you don't give her what you want. You give her what you think she wants. You must practice the Joe Jones principle and see her through her own eyes and not your eyes. And so, I want you to see the five romantic powers of a man. Write these down. If you're married, you need them. If you're not married, well, I hope you'll need them someday. Amen. If you'd like to be married, uh, you need to write these down. If it's a long way off before you're married, still write them down and start practicing them. If you're a woman, this will describe what kind of expectations you ought to have from a godly husband. Don't put too big a burden on him. Here they are. Number one, you'll see it in verse six. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchant's fragrant powders. Now the first characteristic of the man who romances his wife is tenderness, and it's always represented by fragrance, perfume, scent, Now, she is using a description of the holiness of God in Deuteronomy when she says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Go back to Deuteronomy. And when God appeared to speak to the children of Israel, he appeared as a pillar of smoke out of the wilderness. I find that fascinating, Brad, that she uses this this language about her husband, which is the same language about a holy God coming to his bride, Israel. So she sees this. This procession from a long way off. And there is Solomon. Now, in American weddings, the bride is the very center of the wedding. But in Hebrew weddings and in Eastern, Middle Eastern weddings, the groom was always the center of the marriage ceremony. The bride stays at her house, and the groom comes for the betrothal. See, so this is very important that we understand that's not, you don't understand this unless you get out of your culture and see, here comes uh, Solomon with all his entourage, and she sees him as a column of smoke coming out of the wilderness, and she uses the language of Deuteronomy, talking about God coming to reveal himself to the children of Israel out of the wilderness. Well, I'll tell you how she looks at her husband. She sees this as a very holy thing. Endorsed by God with all the mystery and all the awesomeness that a holy God exudes. So it is in marriage, she is saying. And he is a tender man because even from afar off, she says, he's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the merchant's fragrant powders. Now, when a man is tender... He is meeting a particular need in the life of his wife. It's a need for care and sensitivity. Folks, that's why we have 1 Peter 3, 7. Dwell with your you husbands, likewise. Be submissive to your wives. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Dwell with them according to knowledge, meaning study your wife and find out what she is like so that you can meet her need of tenderness. Ladies and gentlemen, the single most important thing is learning how to read when your wife needs tenderness. You've got to know when to hug and when to tug. You've got to know when to be tender and when to be firm. You say, how am I going to learn that? You study your wife just like you study any situation. I know my wife, in the last few days, I've had to learn some additional times of tenderness in the loss of her dad. I know that there are times when she doesn't want me to say anything. She just wants me to hold her in my arms and stand there and be with her. And there are times when she wants me to leave her completely alone and she doesn't even want to touch me. I wish I could describe all of those, but every wife is different. There are as many ways to be tender as there are women in the world. And it's your job to study your wife and know the tender times. Talk to her about that. But tenderness, Oh, you say, well, I wasn't raised that way. You say, that's not my personality. I can't be tender. I'd rather be honest. Just tell her when she smells and tell her when she doesn't. Now, wait a minute. I don't care how you were raised, and I don't care how crude your personality may be. If the power of Christ can change your life in terms of salvation and forgiveness and a new life, he can change your past in terms of what a man ought to be to a woman. It will take the power of Christ and the glory of Christ for you to be the glory of your wife that Paul describes in First Thess- Corinthians. Tenderness—you've got to know when to hug, and you've got to know when to tug. You've got to know when to be firm and know when to be slack. And there are times when nothing else will work than just a touch. Just be tender and communicate to her that you care about her, and you understand her feelings enough to know that you don't walk over her. A woman was standing on a beach, and she saw this huge sea turtle. The sea turtle had laid her eggs. They, they crawl up onto the beach, way up to the high beach, and they dig a conical hole and then they lay from 80 to 120 eggs because the survival rate is so small of those turtle eggs. And this particular turtle had gotten disoriented and could not find her way back to the ocean. And she'd obviously been in the sun. By the time this lady came along, she was pretty dried out. And she tried to be so tender. Now, these turtles weigh three and 400 pounds. Have you ever seen? I've, I've been into their nests. I mean, I've, I've picked eggs out of the nest I've watched them lay, I've watched them scroll, crawl back to the ocean. Well, she put sand around her trying to protect her from the hot sun, poured water all over the back trying to cool her off because she realized she was drying out in the sun. And she tried to be so tender and so careful and so neat with that. Finally, a fellow came along with a cell phone and she said, could you call the park ranger for me and tell him where we are. Tell him that there's a turtle stranded on the beach. And pretty soon, sure enough, the park ranger, this is a true story, park ranger came up, wheeled up in his pickup truck, got out, took one look at the turtle, ran for the bed of his truck, took the huge logging chain out, wrapped it around the turtle, got in his truck, started it off, headed for the ocean as fast as he could go in first, and just as he got to the water, he veered to the right, and the force of it picked up that turtle and flung her right out into the water, and the chain dropped off of her. And the woman thought, my goodness, I've been so careful with this turtle. And this guy who's supposed to know what he's doing, he gets a logging chain and jerks her 40 miles an hour. But she wound up in the ocean, which was her natural climb. And soon she was oriented and swimming back to her regular life. That's what I mean when I say, you've got to know when to hug and tug. Now be careful because wives are not turtles. And you don't jerk them around. Amen? Amen. My point is that there are times when you have to be firm, lovingly, kindly firm. And there are times when you have to be tender. Paul said, or Peter said in that same passage, treat your wife as a fragile vase. Treat her as a Ming Dynasty vase that's worth $100,000. Don't you dare drop her. Be tender with her. Handle her like that. And if you say, I can't do that, then you get on your knees and fall before God and say, God, take my tongue and make it a tender tongue. God, take my hands and make them a tender hands. God, take my heart and make it a tender heart so that I can realize the sensitivity and the care that my wife needs. That's the romantic power of a man is to care in tenderness. If I were not saved for heaven... If I were not sure that I'm going to glory when I die, I would still love Christ. Because no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and sadness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. And the tenderness of a husband is typified in the tenderness of the Lord Jesus towards his church. He never comes at the wrong time with the wrong spirit. He's always in the right place at the right time. He always knows when your burden is too heavy. He always knows when your grief is too great. He always knows when the pain is too much. Christ is is the life of the body. We are his body. If Jack Welch dies, there will still be a General Electric Company. If Governor Hunt dies, there will still be the state of North Carolina. If Tom Hearn dies, there will still be the Wake Forest University. If Mark Quartz dies, there will go on till Jesus comes, Calvary. Baptist Church, but if Jesus is not alive, there cannot be his church. His body depends upon the fact that he died, was buried, raised again, and is at the right hand of the Father. He is the life of the church. And in this picture of the bride and groom, there is to be such a oneness that the care and the sensitivity and the tenderness of a husband is always necessary to meet the care and the sensitivity and the tender needs of his wife. And that is one of the greatest romantic powers you have. You have no idea. If you will learn how to be tender with your wife, you have no idea the power of romance in that she will love you to death. The second thing is found in the next verse, verse 7. She's looking. It's the pillar of smoke coming out of the wilderness. Then she says, behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel, and they all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Oh, here comes my beloved to marry me. Here comes the entourage, and there are 60 valiant men all armed with swords standing around. Now here Solomon demonstrates his might his strength. Isn't this a beautiful picture? She can feel totally secure in the hands of a husband who brings 60 valiant men to the marriage all armed with swords. Now, can you imagine a wedding in this church and the bride's about to come down. She's peeking through that window in the back. I've done this a little over 900 times. And uh, the groom is out here. You know, it's funny, we Americans. Poor old groom stand there by himself, nobody but the best man, you know, fiddling with change in the pocket, saying, you really think you love her? (laughs) Shall I send the Bluebird cab home? It's sitting outside. You go to the bridal room, and it's filled. Every aunt, every niece, every sister, every woman who ever knew her mother, they're all in there. Ooh, ah, your hair's so beautiful, honey. And, you know, they can look like a hag, and somebody's going to tell them they look great. They're going to make it great. And they stand there and tell her every, every picture, although I have never seen an ugly bride, to be honest. But it's full of people bragging about the bride, the poor groom standing back here by himself. But not Solomon. Solomon comes with 60 men armed with Uzi machine guns. Can you imagine? He stations them all around the church. She will feel safe when she walks in and sees all these machine guns around the church, right? She'll be scared to death. What am I getting into? But you see, in the picture the Shulamite woman draws, it's a picture of might and strength. And it says to her, As I take you to be my wife, I will be your protector. I will protect you in every way, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. His might and his strength are used not to crush his wife. Oh, men, don't bruise your wives. Don't crush her like a cheap vase. Take your might and your strength and use it to protect her, to encircle her, to assure her that you love her. That's the goal. And Solomon does that with his Solomon's couch and 60 valiant men. And he meets the need of his wife for security. Every woman manifests security in a different way. I want to make sure the Duke Power Bill is paid. I want to make sure this is done. But she must feel safe. You are her physical protector and her emotional protector and her spiritual protector and you don't let anybody attack her and you never use your might and strength to attack and belittle and squeeze her and push her down to nothing. I've seen women married to men for seven years, and in seven years, the man has completely destroyed the woman. She has no sense of who she is, no idea of who she is. She has no purpose in life, and that is tragic, and shame on us men when we have not learned how to be tender as well as mighty and strong. One of our boys was about 14, and he was feeling his strength and his oats, and he didn't know I was in the house. And he got into an argument with his mother and he talked back to her. And I was reading in the study and I got up and went out to where they were and I said, stop it right now. You will not talk to your mother this way because she is my wife and when you're talking to her, it's the same as talking to me. Is that right? Isn't that right, Fred? Now, I won't put up with that. I would never let you talk to me that way and you're not going to talk to her that way. Now, you apologize to her. See, I had, the great white knight had come to her defense. Now, I go back to my room to read my book. She comes back into the room a few minutes later where I am, and she starts rubbing her body up against my arm and putting her finger on the back of my neck and just petting me like that. Oh, wow, I don't know what happened, but I sure do like this. (laughs) And then she went away, and she came back a few minutes later and started playing with my ear. Oh, folks, you don't play with my ear unless you know what you're doing. You don't play with my ear. And she started running her fingers through my hair. And I thought, what has happened? She left and came back a few minutes later and this time sat on my lap. I put that book up. I said, enough of this book. I get the message. (laughs) See, when I had become, I had used my might and my position and my authority in the family to defend her against her own son, she was protected. That is what Christ does for the church. That is what Jesus does for you. You don't have to take charge of getting revenge because Christ is in charge of that. God is the author and avenger of you as an individual. So the first romantic power of a man is tenderness, and the second is might and strength. The third is very curious. It's what I call splendor. Verse 9, of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin, a mobile chair. One of those chairs you would see carried around in a movie from India, you know, on, on, on posts, and they sit up in them. A palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple. Do you know how valuable this was? you know, most purple came from the seashore where they took those purple shells and crushed them and then soaked them until the purple color would come out. And do you know how many shells you had to get with purple in it in order to get enough purple to dye the cloth? When she says its support is of gold, its pillars of silver, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love, she is giving you a clue that the splendor that has been prepared in order to carry her off for the wedding, that splendor is a splendor of love. She connected the glory of that cart with the love that Solomon had for her. Now that doesn't mean that if you're not rich, you can't love a woman. What it means is that he gave her the best he had for her because of love. And it's that splendor that met the need of respect. He is saying, I respect you. I hold you in high regard and I give you the best that I have. Do you know when Shirley and I were first married, I made $50 a week. And we had a little two-and-a-half-room apartment with a bathroom out in the hall that you had to back into, and only one person could be in there at a time. Now, it was not a luxurious palace, but it was the best I could give her. A woman sees a man as living in splendor when he is able to demonstrate his love by giving her what is the very best that he has, in time, in attention, in, in material things. You don't have to lavish a woman in order to love her. You must, she must know that you've given her the best you have. And you withhold nothing, if necessary, for yourself. If you have money for one vehicle and she needs a truck and you need a, uh, wait a she needs a car and you need a truck, you, it's always the car first, amen, ladies? All the choir said. And in so doing, he shows her his splendor by putting her needs before his. That's what lets a woman know you respect her. That is why I am so proud to be a Christian. I'm so proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ because once I know he loves me, and he made me into what he wants me to be. I am now treated with greater respect than the world ever. The, the world only exists to destroy you. Christ exists to give you glory and to build you up. And so there is the splendor in verses 9 and 10. Now, what's the fourth romantic power of a man? Verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with a crown, with which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, the fourth thing she sees in him, this is her description, remember, is majesty. She sees his majesty. There is something majestic about a man who is tender but strong and full of splendor. There is something majestic about that man who knows how to treat a woman. I can watch it in public. When a man opens a door for a woman, there is something that is majestic. I call it majesty because she is focusing on his crown, his authority, his position, his place. And she says, go forth, O daughters of Zion. She speaks to the women from Jerusalem surrounding the coterie. And see King Solomon with the crown. Know what kind of husband I'm marrying. I want you to see him. My goal is for my wife to be as, prou- as proud of me as I am of her. And the way I, I let her know I am a majestic man is that I take the place God gave me in the home, and I take the place God gave me in the marriage, and I never abuse it to walk on her. I use it to serve her as Christ used his place, his divinity to serve us. I've been trying to do that over these past few days. I think we, we give our wives the need of honor. We honor them, and it's slightly different from Respect. To honor is to give a place that others can see last night Tim and Becky had come up to spend some time with, with, uh, with us uh, and, and he was there and, and uh, Tim got up and went to the kitchen now you got to understand my wife is the kind of woman if you take a drink and you set that glass down three and one third seconds later it is already in the dishwasher and she is nowhere around I tell you, I put a stopwatch on it, and I don't know where she goes. I don't know how she gets into that kitchen, gets that glass in that dishwasher, and by the time I want a second drink, it's already gone. It's too late. I got to dirty another glass. She says, that's okay. That's why we got a dishwasher. <laughs> that's her answer. Now, now so here is Shirley with Tim and Becky, and Tim said to her, my son-in-law. Now, you got to know, he's, he's about, I don't know. 240 pounds. He's got a 50-inch chest and a 34-inch waist. He looks just like me, exactly. Um, He looked at her and said, sit down. She said, what are you saying? I said, sit down. She said, I I don't want to. I've got to put this away. He said, sit down. I know we won't put it away just like you want us to, but we're going to do it anyway. Sit down. And she sat down. And from the chair, told him what to do next. (laughs) But you see, he was trying to honor her in a time when he felt she needed to be honored. He was reaching out to honor her. I got up early yesterday morning and the garbage can in the kitchen pantry was full. And I thought, let me do something for her. I pulled that little plastic thing over lip and tied it tight, carried it out real quietly to the, I took it outside to the garbage can when she came in. I put a clean one back in there and, you know, pulled it over the edge and then set the top and put it right back in its place. So when she looked at it, she didn't have to look at all that trash and garbage and junk. There was a nice clean garbage can. You'd be amazed what a clean garbage can will do for a wife at the beginning of the day. You'd be absolutely amazed. But what I did was, by doing it without being told or asked, I honored her. That's her domain. (laughs) Hey, five times before, I didn't do it. (laughs) Now, notice the fifth and last one. It is in chapter 4. I call it word power. Now, I don't care what your wife's love language is. Every woman needs words once in a while. And he does three things for her. He brags on her physical description in this chapter. He brags on her emotionally. And he brags on her spiritually. And he tells her. And she records it. And it's a part of what makes a man romantic. Look at this physical description. Behold, This word power, behold, verse one, chapter four, you are fair, my love, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Imagine that, honey, when I look into your eyes, I see doves. Now, wait a minute, a dove was a bird of peace. Noah released a dove from the ark because a dove is not a vulture. If he'd released a vulture, the vulture would have gone out and thrived on all the dead animals he saw. But by releasing a dove, he knew the dove wouldn't. And if the dove didn't see anything on which he could exist, the dove would come back to the ark. That's why I released a dove and and not a vulture. So this is a great description. Your eyes are like doves, he says. And your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, I probably would recommend that you not tell your wife Her hair is like a flock of goats coming down Gilead. You will be in serious deep weeds right then. Now, you've got to get the context, however. Gilead was a lush mountain on the east side of the Jordan, and it fed, it raised tremendous pasture ground, and the sheep who fed on Mount Gilead, were said to be the finest and best and most beautiful sheep because their skins were so beautiful. So when he says, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead, it's a compliment in this culture. It would be like saying, honey, your hair looks better than the Revlon girl in that TV commercial or whatever, suave or, or what, are some of the, what are some of the better known lady shampoos. I don't use lady shampoo, but I don't even buy it. But I, anyway, whatever kind. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Look at how he values her. The work of the hands, uh, excuse me, your teeth, verse 2, are like a flock of shorn sheep. (laughs) He says, oh, honey, this is a physical description now. He says, you have beautiful teeth. They're like shorn sheep. Now, you say, my goodness, if somebody tells me I got teeth like shorn sheep, I'm going to think they're blind. No, no, wait a minute. When a sheep has been shorn, that beautiful skin is showing, and they're washed. No, notice, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Well, what that says is, he bragged on her teeth. They look like the back of a freshly shorn sheep who had been washed. Ladies, brush your teeth. It'll help him be romantic. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, every one of your, your teeth bears twins and none is barren among them. She she was just talking without teeth. He says, you got a full mouth of teeth. There are no gaps. Your teeth are beautiful like shorn sheep, and they're like twins, and there is none barren among them. He brags on her. I dare you, I dare you, sir, this afternoon, go home and stand with your wife and give her a physical description of herself and what you see. Like, Sol- like the Shulamite heard from Solomon. And just see what happens. You won't believe the romantic power in telling your wife that her hair is like a flock of goats coming down from Gilead, and her teeth are like shorn sheep, and there's no gapping hole in the front. <laughs> then th- verse three, your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Mouth is a beautiful thing. Lips are beautiful. Do you not believe that? Look at your wife. Pay attention to her. God made her. This is an act of worship. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Did you ever see a piece of fresh pomegranate? Beautiful flesh. That's what your that's what your your temples look like. Your neck is like the tower of David. <laughs> now he's not saying this is Olive. Remember Olive with a long neck, who was Popeye's girlfriend. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers and all shields of mighty men. Oh, don't miss this. He is saying, what a beautiful neck. Have you told your wife how beautiful her neck is lately? Your neck is so beautiful that if it were decorated with a thousand shields and bucklers, it could not be any more impressive than it is. He is describing her. Built for an armory. Then verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Hey, don't dodge the verse. That's the Bible. He describes her figure and says, you're beautiful. You are very attractive to me. Now, if you children don't understand this, go home and ask dad to explain it to you when you get home. But, but, But there it is. It's in the Bible. Twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies, are among the choice things until the day breaks and the shadow f- shadows flee away and I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. I would, your love is so rich, your love is so satisfying, your love is so significant that I could stay with you all morning and never be filled. You are all fair, my love, verse 7, and there is no spot in you. Aren't you glad love makes us blind to faults? Aren't you glad that's the way Christ loves us? Oh, I see you, but I don't see your sin. I see the blood of Christ. I see you, but I don't see your mistakes. I see your forgiveness. And so the lover, Solomon, says to his wife, you have no spot in you. And the scripture goes on now to make an emotional description. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, verse 8. With me from Lebanon, from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinai and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. See, you have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, listen to how romantic this is. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, one link of your necklace. How fair is your love? Again, he connects emotion here. And he says, when I just look, you can look at me and melt. My wife has a certain look. When she looks at me that way, I'm done. It's all over. One link of your necklace, how fair is your love? And he brags on her. This is an emotional thing. You have ravished my heart. You have ravished my heart. My granddad used to make homemade ice cream with fresh, non-pasteurized milk. And he always used junket tablets, and they gave it body, and the junket made it colder. And one day, he knew I loved ice cream. Charlie, he said, you can have all the rest, and I ate till I was so sick. My head pounded, my stomach pounded, but I was full of that homemade junket ice cream. But you know what he's saying? You've ravished my heart, but I can never get enough of you. That's the way it ought to be with us in Christ. Look, folks, this is Jesus Church. When you come today, you're going to hear us sing about Jesus. If you come next Sunday, you're going to hear us sing about Jesus. If you come the next Sunday, you're going to hear us pray to Jesus. If you come the next Sunday, we're going to be preaching to Jesus. If you come the next Sunday, we're going to be giving praise to Jesus because that's what we're about. Jesus has ravished our hearts, and we can never get enough of him, and that's what this ministry is about. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's not about politics. It's about Jesus. He has ravished our hearts and we can never be the same, and we can never have enough of him. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse, in verse 10. How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes and all spices. Your lips, oh, my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Oh, he said, your lips are so inviting, it's like they're covered with honey. (laughs) And then, listen, he really gets romantic here. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Honey and milk are under your tongue. What is he talking about? The French did not invent the kiss. It was a Hebrew kiss long before France was even around. Remember that. And he's saying your love is so rich and full, so full and so satisfying. I'm trying to describe it to you, he says. Then he closes with a spiritual description. Verse 12. Honey, you're like a garden enclosed. You're my sister, my spouse. Your romantic joys are like a garden that was locked up and I couldn't get in. She was a virgin till she was married. It's like a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. And he describes the most luxurious garden he can imagine. With all the chief spices, you're a fountain, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. He's saying, what you do to my spirit, I cannot describe. Have you told your spouse how much she means to you spiritually lately? See, he says, you're a spring, a fountain. You're a fountain, a well. You're a stream. Do you know how we men can get so much done? I'll tell you one thing. I am married to a rich and satisfying woman who ravishes my heart. And I can never get enough of her. And there are times when it's hard and there are times when she's not even likable, but I, she still ravishes my heart. I don't understand that. Except that when you make a covenant with God and you give yourself to somebody, God takes care of the rest. Amen? And the close is the of my remarks. Awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden. I think that's beautiful. you got to understand what she's saying. Remember back over here when she was talking about virginity? She said in verse 5 of chapter 3, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, don't stir up nor awaken love. Now she says, okay, stir it up. Come on, south wind and blow. Come on, north wind and blow. We're married now. Man, that's fantastic. That gives me excitement. She's saying, okay, my garden is open. The door's open. Come on in. That's how much she loved him. That was her response to his physical description and emotional description and spiritual description of what she did for him. In his book, Across the Pacific, in a raft, A man by the name of Huardal tells a story. They had just a little raft and a little sail. They were riding the current from the western coast of South America to Hawaii. And they got into a particularly strong current. One of the men fell overboard and he couldn't swim fast enough to catch up with the raft. The men threw a rope and it slipped by him. They couldn't find a way to turn around to go get him. They didn't have what they needed. There was no way to steer. They were on a straight course carried by the stream. So one man finally grabbed the ring on the end of a long rope and jumped into the water and swam back until the man was carried to him and then grabbed him, put the ring over him. And the men on the raft pulled them both back to the raft. And men, that's your job as protector in the home. When your wife gets into a bad current, you jump in, and at any cost, demonstrate to her how tender you are, how mighty you are, how full of splendor you are, all of the romantic characteristics that a man has. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He saw that we were lost in the stream, and he jumped in and rescued us and saved us. That's how the husband is a type of the Lord Jesus And this morning, I want to give you a chance to make a response to what God is saying and speaking to you. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God and the truth of God. Bless us now with your presence and speak to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.